This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Activate, a show brought to you by Amnesty International. Hello and welcome to another edition of Activate for the month of June. I hope you are surviving the wintry June weather. This month we are very lucky to have Claudia Elliott on our show. She is a lawyer in Auckland. Since 2013 she has worked on and off in Afghanistan and Somalia for the United Nations Development Programme. We will also have our regular slots from our contributors in our team. Uh, so you can look forward to listening to them. Hi, this is Carrie. Um, here to share some human rights news um, from around the world. And this time, actually, I'm going to focus on an Amnesty International report that has recently been launched um, on China. It's called uh, China, Like We Were Enemies in a War. China's mass internment, torture and persecution of Muslims in Xinjiang. That's a, a recent report that has just come out based on first-hand testimonies gathered from former detainees of internment camps uh, in China f- since 2017. Um, and I'm sure that you've heard about this crisis through the news about the Uyghur Muslims being uh, kind of re-educated in China and persecuted. So this report is incredibly thorough and very detailed at uh, well over 150 pages long. So if you do plan to read it, which I would recommend, um, perhaps make yourself a cup of tea or coffee first. Um, It is quite harrowing to read in places, so that's a warning. Um, But it is important to understand what is happening in China. and, And as a result of this report um, Amnesty is calling for or recommending that China release all all prisoners held in these internment camps in Xinjiang uh, unless there is credible and admissible evidence that they have actually committed a recognisably internationally recognisably recognisable offence sorry Um, so There is also a recommendation to close this kind of vocational training, re-education kind of training that is taking place in the internment camps in China to ensure that no one is arbitrarily detained, to ensure that people have access to human rights, uh, legal representation, medical care and their families, and also allow these people uh, to practice their religious beliefs uh, Muslims or any other religion um, to be able to practice those without any kind of um, restriction or um, persecution as a result of their their religious practice and to be able to worship peacefully and privately as they so wish. If this is an area of human rights that you're particularly interested in then I do recommend that you check out the report. You can find it on the amnesty.org website in the research section 
and or if you simply search online for China like we were enemies in a war along with Amnesty International on Google that should bring the report up for you as well. You can download it as a PDF and if you want to reach out to the local group find out more about what you can do to help then please do. There is also a petition you can sign that is available online and you can find that at amnesty.org forward slash en forward slash get dash involved forward slash take dash action forward slash free dash Xinjiang dash detainees. So if you would like to sign that petition then please do and please do reach out and let us know if you would like to get involved in similar cases like this in the future. Thanks for listening. Yes. In a moment, we will be hearing from Claudia Elliott via Skype from Auckland. Claudia grew up near Rotorua. After leaving school, she went to Teachers College and taught in Rotorua and Murupara before heading off on a six-year OE. She travelled through Australia, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, North and South America on local transport and bussed and hitchhiked across the top of Africa. She worked casually where she could, not always legally. On return to New Zealand, she trained as a lawyer and has practised law for over 30 years in Rotorua and Auckland. She continues legal practice between United Nations Development Programme contracts. And as I said earlier, she has more recently worked in Afghanistan and Somalia. Hello, good evening, Claudia. Thank you so much for making yourself available to uh, share your wonderful experiences with us this evening. No problem. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. I thought firstly I would ask you about your role for the United Nations Development Programme that came about in 2013. What led you to take that role? I like a challenge. <laughs> And a friend of mine had suggested I was crazy enough to go, and so I was invited to apply. And it just went from there. Excellent. I understand, too, that quite quickly you found yourself working in Kabul. Yes, that's right. They give you very little notice, and you're expected to um, be packed and on the way uh, for however long your contract is for, which was usually oh, six or eight months at a time. What was your ambit when you first arrived? Hmm. Well, I guess the <clears throat> the first thing was to meet everyone and then to try and work out what standard the um, justice system was functioning at at that stage um, and then what my suggestions were to increase the ability of the justice system to provide particularly for women. Okay. Before I go into more detail about exactly what you saw and how you wanted to change it, you had actually travelled in Afghanistan in the early 1970s. Now we're talking about 2013. Can you describe the change that you saw over those decades? 
Yes, I was one of the numerous Kiwi kids who started their OE across land through Afghanistan, and we travelled by local bus, and we met locals, we stayed in local places, we hitchhiked on occasions, and in most of the bigger cities, Women were riding bikes, wearing short skirts. They didn't have hijabs or any form of head covering on, and they were going to university. In 2013, how had things changed? All of the women were wearing either burqas, which is the full covering from head to foot, including a netting over the eyes. Um, Very few of them were attending any sort of education, far less tertiary. I think it was something like... 0.05% of women at that time were um, at university. So it was huge change. You didn't see women out on the street on their own. They generally had male escorts. And uh, you didn't see girl children out on the streets playing like you did the boys. Mm, gosh, really a revolutionary change. Huge change. In terms of the justice system, did you see the justice system working effectively at all for women and girls on your arrival? Um, I certainly saw the court operating, but no, it wasn't working for women and girls. And that was not just my view. That opinion was shared by many of the wonderful activists that they had working in the um, justice system to try and improve it. They also recognised that there needed to be change, not only in the way that the courts operated, where often women were not allowed to speak. They had to have a male speak for them. And um, their evidence, if they were witnesses, was not considered as, um, as valid as male witness evidence was. The court system over there, would a New Zealander recognise it? Do they have a prosecutor defence the judiciary, is it that sort of system or is there a mix between a formal and informal justice system? Um, there, There is both. They have an informal justice system which is um, Sharia law based and that tends to be um, very prescribed in that women are often not a part of it. They are spoken for in that forum and decisions are made which would not 
um, accord with women's best interests. For instance, in rape cases, the decision was often that the victim would marry the perpetrator. Mm. How did the formal and then informal Sharia law systems relate to each other? They didn't. Okay. Um, the Sharia law systems um, were more informal. However, Sharia law was often applied in the formal justice system. It was not supposed to be to some extent, but the judges um, were often Sharia trained and therefore they applied Sharia law um, because it was easier to some extent. They knew it and they lived it and they applied it, and they didn't need to write decisions about it. They just said Sharia law applies, end of story. You obviously saw the system as it it was, or perhaps (laughs) mostly still is. What did you see that could make change I wanted to see the introduction of more expert courts so that you could train judges, prosecutors and defence lawyers to operate in these specialist areas like we have now in New Zealand, our drug and alcohol courts, um, our family violence courts, they are the ones where you get experts operating in them and they tend to be more um, people-focused as well as victim-focused. How did you see that specialist court working for family violence matters in Afghanistan? There were a number of um, Afghan judges and within the hierarchy who really wanted that system to work and certainly a lot of the civil societies that operate very effectively in Afghanistan, um, they also wanted that because they saw that as a way to bring justice to women Um, and to victims generally. But the hierarchy just didn't want that sort of change. It was going to be too confronting and didn't comply with their very traditional views of how life should be for women and Children didn't figure at all. Children were seen as possessions with no rights. What moves were made to try and change their point of view? The 
the moves were made by the activists, the national activists. It wasn't appropriate for a, um, a white middle-class Kiwi to go in and say, this is what you need to do. I needed to stop and listen and hear what they were wanting, what the nationals were wanting for themselves. And that's what they wanted. But um, even then, there was a strong Taliban influence in the parliament, and they would just not hear of those sorts of changes. So some of the judges informally tried to implement the attitudes that um, happen in the family violence courts, but you know, that was a small part of the entire justice system. You were there until 2018, is that right? Yes. Over those years, are there any takeaway changes that you remember on a positive note? I suppose the strength of the activists in that they were going to keep going no matter what, but the cost to them was high. I mean, a number of them were murdered, um, and that was purely because of the job they did in the justice sector. So they were the ones, the activists were the ones driving it. Um, the hierarchy was um, there in part within the justice system, but it was just too much outside influence. And even in 2018, the Taliban influence was growing. Mm -hmm. You must have met some brave women. Do any of them stick out to you now, even years later? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose um, there were two in particular. One was whom a woman I worked with. Um, she was my interpreter, my cultural advisor, my everything. And she just worked miracles, um, but she has now left Afghanistan and gone to Europe because the risk was just too great for her. Mm. The other one <clears throat> is um, Fauzia Kofi, who is currently, well, she's a member of parliament, a woman member of parliament, and she is also part of the uh, negotiating team between the government and the Taliban. Um, she is a very strong and focused person in promoting the rights of women and children in Afghanistan. The threats on her life have been many and continue today. 
I imagine that you would have found yourself in some very hairy situations. What was uh, the level of security like for you living there? Um, the UN provided good security for us, but um, there was always the risk of bomb attacks on the compound we lived in. There was a risk of bomb attacks um, when we were driving to places, even though we had armoured vehicles. Um, And I remember a a situation I was in where uh, the New Zealand court had asked me if I could interview an Afghan child who lived in Kabul, who was applying to be was going to be adopted in New Zealand. And they said, well, she could just come to your compound. I said, no, she couldn't. You just wouldn't have a child going out in Kabul even at that time because of the risk of attack. Mm. I've been listening to um, former Australian Prime Minister Julian Gillard Gillard's podcast, she does this, an excellent one. And I note that at the end of uh, every interview, she interviews some wonderful women, much like yourself. She asked them, if you had all the power in the world, what's the single thing that you would change for women and girls in Afghanistan? Education and freedom to receive education and have a life, not to be harassed not to be uh, retained in their homes, not to be free to have a full education. I think that is the means to freedom for women and girls anywhere, including in Afghanistan. Thank you, Claudia, very much for your time this evening. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Thank you on behalf of all of our listeners for your bravery going to a place like Afghanistan and doing such incredible work. Good evening, Activate listeners. For June 2021, this is Stefan, and I've got some good news stories to report. Our primary good news stories report uh, relates to an action um, that some of our letter writers took part in. A Pakistani uh, pair of people, uh, Shagufta and Shafkat, uh, who were convicted in 2014 after, well, convicted for blasphemous texts allegedly sent from a phone registered to the uh, Shagufta's name. I've spent the last seven years in a jail waiting to appeal their convictions and death sentences, which are mandatory under Pakistan's laws for blasphemy. However, uh, their conviction and death penalty has been quashed, and uh, this was reported in the Amnesty Good News uh, earlier this month. So responding to the Lahore court's decision to acquit Shagufta Kalsur and her husband, Shafkat Emmanuel, a Christian couple who were sentenced to death for this uh, blasphemous text, Amnesty International's South Asia Deputy Director uh, Dunashika Dusanayaki said 
Quote, today's decision puts an end to the seven-year-long ordeal of a couple who should not have been convicted nor faced a death sentence in the first place. Blasphemy cases are often premised on flimsy evidence and environments that make fair trials impossible, underscoring the significance of this verdict. The authorities must now immediately provide Shavkat, Shagufta, their family and their lawyer, Saiful Maluk, with adequate security. This case is sadly emblematic of the harassment, intimidation and attacks that those accused of blasphemy routinely face and highlights the urgent need to repeal the law. We hope that the next step will be to swiftly repeal the country's blasphemy laws that for too long have been used to target Pakistan's already beleaguered minorities. So that's a fantastic uh, effort uh, by amnesty supporters around the world, including here in New Zealand, who campaigned for this couple's release from prison. Keep up the great work on all the other ongoing cases, uh, either personally or through your letter writing groups that you uh, partake of. Finally, uh, our last good news story tonight is uh, you may have heard or may have read that Amnesty International in Christchurch, the Activate Group, which is us, uh, myself, Stefan, Catherine, Kerry and Greg, won the Amnesty International Dove Award, which is an award um, or awards given each year at the annual general meeting of AHUI uh, for various uh, reasons to groups or individuals around New Zealand. So the Activate team uh, was awarded it for innovation, uh, bringing uh, human rights news stories to uh, yourselves, who are our listeners. So we'd just like to say thank you to all our supporters out there who continue to listen each Monday night, 9.30pm, uh, third Monday of a month here on uh, 96.9 Plains FM, and to those who go to the website the following day, download the show, share it, stream it. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much, listeners, for taking the time to listen to our podcast once again. I hope you enjoyed hearing that interview from Claudia Elliott. And thanks to Plains FM for helping us out once again. Happy winter. I want you to get